0: it's time for class
1: civics just doesn't begin and end on election day this is sunday civics the home for the civically engaged with political strategist l joy williams on sirius
0: xm's urban view Welcome,
1: welcome 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 good morning good sunday morning you are listening to sunday civics I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, Eljoy Williams. And of course, I'm always happy when you make it to class this Sunday morning. Maybe you are relaxing today after a long week. Maybe you're just sitting on your couch, virtually Christmas shopping (laughs) or getting ready for church, getting ready to go out, doing some yard work, whatever you are doing. Thank you so very much for tuning in. And if you're listening to this later, thank you so much for tuning in for that as well have some exciting news to share with you if you are listening to Sunday Civics, which obviously you are. A number of you are listening to Sunday Civics as a podcast, listening to the show later, maybe downloading it onto your phone, onto your tablet, or listening on your Amazon device. Well, guess what? The show this week has been named one of the top 10 civically engaged podcasts this year, and we're number one. Whoops! Of course, <laughs> of course, because of all of you listening and tuning in, making suggestions on guests and topics, wanting to know a little bit more about certain issues, it is because of you and all of that feedback and all of that listening that you're doing that makes Sunday Civics now the number one civically engaged podcast in the country. So thank you so much to all of you who listen, whether you listen live here on SiriusXM or Urban View or you download us later and listen to us as a podcast. Thank you so very much for that. I am always excited about the guests that we bring to the front of the class. And you know, if you've been listening for the last couple of episodes, I've been kind of breaking out of my New York City box here because we have the tendency, whether you live in New York City or in any of the top major cities in the country, everything is focused on you. We're kind of self-centered that way. (laughs) All of the politics, um, has to do with how we feel and how we view the country, the state, and America. But there are, it's not everybody doesn't live in a metropolitan city in this country. And New York City itself is not. All of the state, there's actually more Western New York, there's a Southern tier, there's Upstate, like there's lots <laughs> happening, and I wanted to deliberately talk to more people who are in rural America, dispelling the myths that we have about rural America, and I hope you listen to that conversation as well, dispelling you know the myths that we have about every area being New York City or metropolitan area, and this is really confronting my own bias, and I wanted to bring. People for us to have conversations with that. So, for this morning, coming to the front of the class is Leslie Burke, who's a candidate for New York State Senate in upstate New York. She's a parent, she's a lawyer, she teaches. One of the things I love about her bio is she's like a professional volunteer. She's like volunteered at the local library, the PTA. Who volunteers at the local library? Only civically engaged folks. <laughs> Only civically engaged folks. So, Leslie, thank you so very much for joining Sunday Civics. Welcome
0: to the front of the class. I'm so glad to be here, Eljoy. Thank you so much for that introduction. I love that you celebrate uh, civic volunteering because. <laughs> It's what we do, right? It's what American democracy has built on. And let's get real, a whole lot of that work over time has been done by uh, women and women uh, celebrating that right flat out that that volunteerism is what keeps our democracy going. I just really applaud you for that. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Now, we're going to get into the detail of your bio and the many different hats that you wear. As someone who wears many different hats, I always appreciate the different ways and the different conversations that can be brought up with folks like ourselves who are civically engaged and, you know, do a lot in our community. But we're going to start where we always start with our guests by you telling us the story of your first civic act.
0: I remember riding up and down the streets near my home when I was about four years old, sitting in my little red wagon with my dad pulling me. And my job in my little red wagon was to sort the campaign literature as we went door to door. My dad was a volunteer, Back in the 70s, he volunteered for the candidates that he supported. And, you know, he would go door to door to drop off campaign literature. And my very important job when I was a little girl was to sit in the back and make sure that all the little flyers got aligned properly and that they were ready to hang on somebody's door. And as I rode in my wagon down the sidewalk to the next house, my goal was to make sure I got all of those lined up properly before we got to the next house. And if I did, uh, then I felt like I was really contributing and helping. That's how kids can help. Kids can participate. We can uh, begin our civic engagement by involving the next generation right off the bat. And I applaud my parents for making sure that I felt like my contribution was valuable even at four years old. I love that, Leslie.
1: Listen, it's very important to get those uh, palm cards aligned properly when you're handing them to folks. People don't realize there's a science <laughs> like to that, to be able, like what words are bolded in terms of the design of the palm cards in the mail and then how you give it to people. There, there's method to that madness, right, Leslie?
0: Well, I will, I will say also, and this shows my um, political party affiliation, uh, there was always a union bug at the bottom of those. And I was, you know, growing up in a democratic household. And the way I would make sure even before I could read that they were all facing the right way was I made sure that the union bug showed up in the same spot, because I remember the shape of that bug, even though I couldn't read it. Um, And it took me until I was probably I don't know, 14 or 15 before I understood that not every single piece of campaign literature had a union bug on it. Only the people who were supporting uh, working families and who were supporting people who stood for fair wages had the union bug on their literature. I thought it was just universal. If you were sending out campaign literature, there was always going to be a bug. But that was how I figured out which was the front of the card and which was the back. I
1: love that. I'm sure there are tons of union households listening to you right now that appreciate that sentiment. You know, one of the things that we say here on Sunday Civics is quite often the conversation regarding civic engagement is reduced to civic volunteering as it's like, you know, cleaning up your park and, you know, trash pickup and planting trees and things of that nature, which is all great. And it's all part of, you know, being a part of community, being a part of society. But there's a different level of civic engagement that is not Preach to, engage to, or teach or taught, whether it's in school or even to adults. And that is about you having um equal rights in deciding who represents you, how government operates, how a budget is determined, you know, how you're governed, right? And I'm, you know, I'm always interested to talk to folks like yourself who teaches the First Amendment, you know, at, at, at Cornell about that difference in. Is there some sort of ulterior motive into civic engagement of you as a volunteer to make things look great, you know, and feel great versus you having a real hand and say in government and how you're governed?
0: Wow, you absolutely hit on something that's very near and dear to my heart. I believe passionately that we are a government of, by, and for the people, we set that forward as our ideal uh 250 years ago and we haven't achieved that ideal yet we keep striving for it Uh, we arc toward that ideal but we haven't gotten there and the way we're going to get there is by every single person participating and there's not In my mind, I'm very focused on local level action. That's what I've uh, dedicated my life to for the last five years in leading uh, trailblazers all across the country. But I don't believe in what I think is this, this fallacy that one single person at the top can change everything. I think that democracy is built on every single one of us participating to our fullest extent. And when we start to think that it's dependent on one single person changing everything, then the opposition starts to win because what if we don't find that person? It doesn't work like that. We all have the ability and the power and honestly the joy of getting to participate in our democracy.
1: Yeah. I think that, you know, I tend to believe there is the civic busy work of telling people to, you know, participate in charity, participate in volunteerism, that kind of way. But, you know, there is this dismissiveness of citizens wanting to be involved in the budget process, wanting to change how money is in politics. Like, whoa, that's what we're here for. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like go off and do, you know, you know, your, mutual aid stuff and things or whatever, but like, don't come over here and try to get involved in, you know, grown folks' business. And continuing that, you know, your work in terms of how we reduce big money in politics, those are one of those issues to me in which there is this rejection that the people shouldn't be able to determine how elections are funded, you know, put limits on where you can take money from or even you know shining the light on who is being who is funding different campaigns or issues it's one of those things is like yeah you can go off and do you know your little protests and like charity stuff or whatever but don't tell us where we should take money from don't tell us you know that we should disclose who our funders are those are one of those issues where there's like this barrier of like don't tell us what to do even though we're supposed to be able to determine how we are governed
0: Anytime someone in power tells you that a concept is too complicated for you to understand, it's pretty likely they're trying to hide something. And we have every right and every responsibility to ask those questions. The government in a democracy works for the people. It's not the other way around. And so if the people don't understand what's going on because something's being hidden or something's being Held back, uh, Trailblazer's motto is getting politics out of the back room onto the front porch. If it's not out there on the front porch and you want it out there on the front porch, you have every single right to ask those questions until you understand what there is to understand.
1: Yeah, that's. I love this concept of the front porch politics, right? Because it, it reminds me of, you know, if, if you can talk about something, you know, on your front porch, in your backyard, you know, it's common. It's something that people can relate to. They are discussion discussing real issues of the day. And we know that that happens. Whether or not you think that, um, you know, farmers or, you know, single parents, you know, they can't possibly understand, you know, international budgets or international affairs is like, have you ever sat on the front porch and talked to voters? <laughs> like they understand it pretty well. Like it, you know. And so this, this talking down to the American people as if, I, you know, I'm always offended of the the notion that we can't boil down things into a way that people can understand why, why we are choosing to act a certain way, why we're making decisions, whether it's on budgetary issues or legislative issues, what the impact will be. And you know there are things we make fun of, and that could be anything from people who are anti-vax and things of that nature and being able to put out information. But I think part of that is because people have this distrust that people aren't being honest with them about what are the issues on the table or that you're hiding something. And so that creates this nature of distrust that even something as basic as, you know, vaccines or issues of maternal health or any of that, that people have this automatic distrust because you haven't been honest for a long,
0: very t- a long time. You're absolutely right. And we delegate that responsibility. We as voters, as, as citizens, as participants in this great American democracy experiment, which is still an experiment. It's still ongoing. Uh, we delegate that responsibility to the elected officials that we choose. Um, but we still own the democracy. And so we might not Uh, on our front porches get into the weeds of what exactly the line items on each individual budget are. But we have every ability to to understand what the larger perspective is. Budgets are a a blueprint of the values of an organization, of a country. And if those budgets don't reflect the values that we want to see uh, advanced, then, we're allowed to ask those questions and get those answers back.
1: Yeah. So we're going to take a break, a real quick break. And then when we come back, I want you to talk more about trailblazers. What, uh trailblazers is doing across the country and what you're seeking to do in this next cycle so we'll take a quick break here and when we come back we'll talk about trailblazers pack that you think that you must do to start in this world like when the t-shirt schoolboy and school girl come together who is the t-shirt i go let you know who is the t-shirt i go let you know welcome back to sunday civics we are Listening and having a conversation with Leslie Burke, who is the founder of of Trailblazers Pack, which she's going to talk more about now, and let's see, she's taught First Amendment law, which we're going to talk about later. <laughs> we're going to talk about that um, among other things. But Leslie, thank you so very much for again for 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 joining us for this conversation. So I want to talk a bit about Trailblazers Pack. Talk about why you founded it and what the work is that the pack is embarked on.
0: Trailblazers Pack has been around for five years. We kicked off in uh, January of 2017. And what we do is focus on local level candidates anywhere in the country who don't wait around for the laws to change on corruption and honesty in politics. They're not pushing for a legislature to change what the rules are. Instead, they follow a higher standard right now. And anybody can choose to do better than the law requires. There's no reason that our ethics rules have to be a ceiling rather than a floor. And so what we ask candidates to do is do better. Uh, And they they do. Not only do they do that during their campaigns, they win their races. And we've been very excited over five years to discover that 65% of the candidates who have chosen to use this model of following uh, higher ethical standards, have beaten their opponents, have have won their races. And that really gives us hope. It really gives us a sense that democracy can be better, uh, that it's not demoralizing, that it's not beyond repair. Uh, We talked before the break a little bit about Uh, how folks can get disillusioned and and feel very disenfranchised by a political process that does not include them. And when that happens, that tears at the fabric of our democracy. It it starts to become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If people think that democracy is broken, it starts to break even more. And so when we see trailblazers out there who are choosing to do better and who are winning by choosing to do better, that really gives us hope for the future.
1: So, talk a little bit more. I want to go a bit deeper on this ethical standards piece. What does that look like? What are the, if, you know, there's a candidate running locally, and just to be clear, this is nonpartisan. This is not just for Democrats, right? So, exactly.
0: If, if for those who we want the, all the candidates to follow better rules, not just the Democrats.
1: Right. So, you know, there are candidates running, obviously, in 2022, like yourself, running for state legislature, running for Congress from there, if, you know, somebody is approaching and saying, yes, I want to have higher ethical standards in how I run my race as well, what does that look like?
0: So when you're a candidate, often you're not already in office. Often you are. Often incumbents, you know, already have opportunities to vote certain ways on on legislation that's before them. But if you're a candidate who has, is not currently holding elected office, usually you can make campaign promises and that's about it right what we found at trailblazers pack was a really exciting way for candidates to demonstrate in their campaigns that they're not just promising to be more ethical but they're actually doing it right now and what we found is that they can follow higher campaign finance standards they can disclose more than the law requires them to disclose and they also and this is really key can fund their campaigns by donations from actual voters in their district before they reach out to anyone else. We don't tell candidates that they have to decline donations from any particular place. We are a carrot, not a stick. Uh, But we do ask candidates before they go reach out to large outside interests or big money interests that they first raise funds from inside their district. That doesn't just make them more accountable to their voters, it actually makes them more powerful candidates. They're more likely to win because they're doing what elected officials are supposed to do, which is connect with the communities that put them there.
1: So it's one, raising money within the district that you are seeking to represent before you reach out to the big pocketed folks, right. if you do that. Two, it's disclosing even more than your state or local requirements may be you know disclosing who your donors are and who you're raising from or who's bundling from you from there
0: is that that's that's exactly right. And so when candidates do those two things and it sounds like it might not be hard, but it actually is really, really hard, especially for very, very local races so, let me just give you an example. Let's say, um, you know, let's say you're running for city council in a city that only has you know, 100,000 people in it, and you are trying to reach out to more people to support your campaign than local city council people usually do. Local city council races, let's, let's say that it costs $20,000 to run the city council race usually what the candidate will do is go to the local political party, get $5,000 from the local political party. They'll uh, go to their Uncle Joe in California, who's always loved them, and get another couple of thousand dollars from Uncle Joe. They'll kick in some money from from their own uh, budgets, from their own household. They'll get four or five donations from other supporters. They'll get maybe a union contribution. And then they'll call it a day. And that's that's as much outreach on fundraising as they do at this very hyper-local level. What we're asking candidates to do is instead go to fully 1% of the voting households in their district. Uh, So in a 100,000 person community, that's a 1,000 folks that you have to talk to and actually get them to buy into your campaign at the $1 level, the 25 five cent level, the $100 level, whatever it is Uh, that seems comfortable for that donor. But those are, that's a thousand conversations that you have to have with people right in your community. That is very, very different from how local city council races are usually run. When people think about money and politics, they think often about big, huge, millions and millions of dollar uh, congressional races. The same thing happens there, sure, but it actually happens even more at the local level that people are beholden to just a few folks. Hmm.
1: You know, I didn't, again, as I said in the top of the show, I tend to default to my view of elected officials and politics based upon what happens here in New York City, which is the most expensive media market, which has a larger concentrated population in terms of city council. And so people are raising, you know, millions of dollars. I think New York City mayor's race is one of the top races in the country in terms of the amount of money that needs to be raised to actually win an election in for New York city mayor, that's not taken into account other, you know, local races, whether it's city council, you know, the city controller or things of that nature, like there's thousands and, you know, sometimes millions of dollars that people are raising, you know, but when you get down and that's even in the state legislature, particularly in certain places across the country. So, you know, thinking, how you know people in other states that have you know part time legislators, part time legislature, right? That they have a law practice, <laughs> you know, they have something else, this is not their primary job, and they can win their election or run their election with ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars. You know, the ability to and lacks financing laws, the ability that I can just go to three or four people to give me $10,000 in order to win this race. And then now I have control and say, so over a state budget, you know, over legislation, over redistricting, and then be beholden to the this small amount of people, you know, thinking about that in that kind of context
0: is a little scary, Leslie. It, it is scary. It also can be empowering. Isn't it funny how lots of scary things can also be empowering? Because if little politicians grow up to be big politicians and they start out in their local races uh, really advancing the idea that democracy belongs to we the people, and that voters are the most important people in the room and should be included in the conversation, then as these little politicians move forward in their careers at, you know, maybe they start out as a city council member in, um, you know, Duluth, and then, and then they become a state legislator, and then they run for Congress, they're going to hopefully continue to carry those promises that they, they made to Uh, advance the ideas of of a voter-centered democracy. Hmm. So I want
1: to switch a bit for you to put your lawyer hat on, and particularly teaching First Amendment. Money in politics has also been used as an example of sort of free speech in in an election context. The ability for you as an individual to contribute money to candidates, campaigns, political organization is equitable, at least it is is now, to free speech. And we saw that carry over um, into Supreme Court cases, you know, where companies are deemed as people and having free speech by giving money to candidates as well. Can you talk about one, that rationale right? That money equals speech. I think for some people, I know of talking to some people, they're kind of confused as to how me contributing money is free speech.
0: Wow. You really uh, went straight to the heart of the first amendment debate right now among legal scholars and justice Stevens on the Supreme court made the argument when, um, when uh, Citizens United was being decided that actually money is not speech, money is property. Uh, money is a tool that you use to, to um, participate in speech just like any other tool. Maybe you have a microphone, maybe you, know, you have a soapbox that you stand on, but the soapbox or the microphone are not the speech itself. Uh, the speech is protected, but money is property. So that's, that's a legal argument that's out there It's not the legal argument that the Supreme Court currently adopts, right? So that's an argument that's happening in academic circles and it's happening in a lot of social uh, conversation in conversations like this one right here, but it's not one that the Supreme Court has embraced at this point. So we talk about that, I talk about that with my students at Cornell Law School, What? is speech? And what do we protect? And when one person has the ability to drown out another person's speech, what role does the government have in stopping that or equalizing things? Now, you know, for, for decades, the ACLU has been of the opinion uh, that you don't stifle anybody's speech, Because once you start stifling one person's speech, even if it's abhorrent speech, then there starts to be a precedent for stifling speech that, you know, you might want to have in the community. Uh, That's why organizations like the ACLU have for decades fought litigation to protect the right of you know, for example, the Ku Klux Klan to protest and, and to stand up and say what they believe in parks in, in Chicago. That was a very controversial um, uh, ACLU case back in the 1970s in Chicago. The ACLU defended the right of the Ku Klux Klan to, to speak and hold a protest because they said, look, you start, you know, censoring one person's speech. Pretty soon they're going to come for everybody else, so that is the—that's the crux of the argument, Eljoy, and uh, it's a tough one. It's a really hard one to work through, uh, and I—I sure enjoy working with my students through that uh, mental tangle.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we all know the—you know—I'm one who believes the Supreme Court is not my friend all the time in that, you know, in the history of this country, it has gone back and forth in terms of protecting, restricting, you know, rights, right? Like it's wherever the wind blows and whoever appoints who on the bench is what happens at the Supreme Court, right? And, you know, I, I can admit, I struggle with money equaling speech and tend to be of the view, even though I'm not a tra- you know, trained lawyer, obviously, you know that it is a tool. You know, similar to the tool of my of my bullhorn. You know, however, you know the speech it still comes from. You know, for me, I don't I don't think of it as you know itself speech without sort of the directive of me as an individual.
0: So I'm, I'm with you personally, Eljoy. I'm, I'm with Justice Stevens. You can know you're in very good company. Uh, <laughs> uh, Justice Stevens is, um, is, is a pretty brilliant thinker, I think in American uh, history of Supreme court justices. And I, I agree with you and I agree with him that money is not speech money is property. Uh, but that's not what the Supreme court says right now. No, and correct. so, you know, we who care, you and I and, and everybody else out there listening to this, who care about civics and who care about making sure that we are fully participating in democracy and that, and that we have all the information to do that, uh, we got to be aware that that's, that's a debate happening out there right now. And, and you know, we get to have an opinion, uh, whether we're trained lawyers or not. Eljoy, your, your opinion counts just as much as I think anybody else's, <laughs> even if you don't have a lot of degree to, to back it up. I think you're right. Speech is speech and money is a bullhorn.
1: Yep. So, you know, the other conversation regarding uh, free speech that infuriates me. Is, you know, and, and I've done this with young people as well, where they're like, oh, I have you know, free speech, I can say and you know, do what I, you know, do what I want. I can say words, whatever I want to do, whatever. And I'm always quick to follow up as like, yeah, you have the freedom of speech, you don't have the freedom from consequences of that speech. Bingo. <laughs> right? Bingo. So sure, you can call me the B-word. It does not protect you from getting punched in the face afterwards. Like, you know, so making that connection for folks and also the difference between, you know, the government restricting that, which is what the amendment says, versus you being restricted of that, like in, you know, a public park or, you know, here in a classroom or something like that.
0: That's absolutely right. So what what the First Amendment says is Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So what that means is that the government, Congress, can't short circuit your speech. It doesn't mean that a private business can't. Uh, it does, and, and as you point out, it doesn't mean that if you say something, there won't be consequences. And those are two really important concepts to remember when we're talking about free speech. There can be consequences to speech and other people, other private entities can tell you, you can't say this in my house.
1: Yeah. Like, I don't understand what what people don't get about that. I mean, it always um, boils down, you know, I stopped engaging, but early on in Twitter, you know, white folks would be like, why can I say the word? I was like, no one is preventing you from saying the N-word. You can say it if you want. Now, if you get punched in the face for calling somebody the N-word, that's on you. Like, and no, like people shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't be surprised that someone want to punch you in the face for that or things of the nature. And it's also not the government restricting you from saying it.
0: <laughs> well, and that's, that's really, you just brought up Twitter. And I think that that's really where big money intersects with free speech is Twitter is a private company. Facebook is a private company, uh, meta, I guess now it, is what it's called. and and
1: Facebook meta and Twitter? I always think they're owned by the same people and they're not. (laughs) They're
0: they're not, but they probably go to the same club. Uh, And so when a company like Twitter is as huge as it is and as many people rely on it for their news and for their information sources they do, then does it start to have sort of a a quasi-government presence? You know, does it, once it's bigger than a government, can it, does it not have the ability to restrict speech? Right now, if Twitter wants to boot anybody off, they can, they it's, a
1: private, can. A I mean, of
0: it's a private company. Now, right.
1: we get into the conversation that somehow, some have, and talk about the internet be, should be a public utility, right? Access to the internet. Even then, You know, it's still a space. It's not the government. It's not Congress making a law that you can't say things or post certain things. It still is a private entity that and and even it being publicly traded, it is still a private company. Right. And being able to decide like you do not have right to a Twitter account. You do not you have, have a right to a, you Twitter don't have a right to a
0: Facebook account, right? Like and, you don't have and we a, see that with lots of fo- lots of um, bots and real people are getting kicked off of Twitter.
1: Yeah. Former president I
0: mean, Donald Trump got kicked off of Twitter.
1: Right. And people making the argument that, you know, you're stifling, you know, my voice was like, This company is, the government is not, right? <laughs> like and you still have the ability to stand outside on a soapbox in a park, you know, and you know, say whatever it is you're, you know, you're going to say it, you know, the government is not restricting you from that standpoint, you know? yes. Yeah, should-
0: so, so, see, Eljoy, you should join my class because you know, <laughs> you know, this stuff backwards and forwards and, and this really is my life's work is to, uh, you know, to, to engage people from four-year-olds like I was back in my little red wagon when I was a kid all the way, on up to um, esteemed radio hosts like you, Eljoy, <laughs> that, uh, that you don't have to have any specialized background to participate mm-hmm. in our civic conversation. Uh, these, are, these are basic concepts. These are the rules that we decide of how we're going to live together in a society. And everybody has the life experience to participate in that conversation. And we should be participating in that conversation. When I first ran for office, um, one of my daughters, I, I have two daughters, one of them was in kindergarten at the time and she asked me what it was that I was trying to do by running for office. What, what was this job interview that I was doing, this year long job interview of a campaign? And I explained to her, well, listen, you sit down in circle time at kindergarten at your morning meeting and you talk about what the rules of the classroom are and, and you decide as a group, Uh, what the rules of the classroom are, because that's the community that you live in. And uh, you, you all have to buy into those rules so that that society can continue to function during the school day. That's what I'm running to do. I'm running to get to be one of the people who sits down in circle time for the state and decides what the rules are. And that's a concept that a kindergartner can understand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, anytime I, you know, I'm one of belief that, you know, my degree, me being a lawyer and quite frankly, sometimes I know more than lawyers, particularly as it pertains to voting rights and other things, <laughs> you know, and it's me telling lawyers, like one of my favorite thing to do is CLE trainings on voting rights. Like a number of lawyers groups have me come and do that all of the time because, you know, one of the misconceptions people have with lawyers is that they know the law about everything. And it's like, no, they concentrate specifically <laughs> Like on one area of law, they don't, you know, yes, they go to law school and they know general things and general contracts, They, but that doesn't mean they know everything. Just similar with elected officials, you know, elected officials don't know everything about every policy issue and, you know, every budget item as well. And so, you being an expert on a particular issue, you know, it's not just lobbyists that can contact and engage with elected officials and others on issues. If you are, you know, you know, the dairy industry, you know, backwards and forwards, you don't have to be a lobbyist to contact and engage with your elected officials about, you know, the dairy industry and what government needs to do or state legislature needs to do in order to either bolster that indus- industry or support dairy farmers. Right. Like you don't have to be a lobbyist with a two hundred thousand dollar income in order to help direct policy um, and budgetary items related to that. And I tend to think of myself as just like I don't have a law degree, but I know something about <laughs> these discussions.
0: Well, more power to you. Bring, bring in your your expertise to the conversation, because we need you. We need the kindergartners. We need everybody right now, because honestly, democracy is under threat. And we've seen these periods in American democracy before where it's been under threat. Uh, We have survived them in the past. I believe that we will survive it again this time, but it's going to take all of us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're going to take our uh, last quick break. And then, Leslie, when we come back, um, I want to talk to you more um, about front porch politics. And I don't know if you've seen this recent I don't even know if you can call this a focus group. I'm going to tell you more about it when we get all, (laughs) when we come back from break, um, because it really is disturbing. But given that you organize all across the country, I know you'll have something to say about that. So we'll be right back after this break. How can it be that you love the most unlovable? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, Eljoy Williams, and joining us at the front of the class is Leslie Burke. Leslie, I don't know if you saw this, like, memo that the New York Times did this whole, like, big thing about on social media this past week, but, you know, some Democratic pollster organization did a focus group of voters in Virginia, 18 of them, just 18 voters and did a focus group about why, you know, Terry McAuliffe lost in Virginia, you know, what particular issues, you know, were they about, and then produced this memo to talk about, you know, Democrats, instead of focusing on social issues, need to focus on, you know, the real issues of the economy, which is what people care about, these 18 people of this focus group. Now, you know, I have my own, I have my own um, <laughs> reaction to this to this news. But quite frankly, what the you know memo says is one, focusing on the economy. The Democrats have a messaging problem, a national branding messaging problem, in that we're not focusing on the issues that people care about, and that's the reason why Democrats lost Virginia, and it's the reason why we're going to lose in 2022.
0: Well, I think you already heard me say that I I disagree with that view uh, because budgets are value statements. And I don't think you can untangle so-called economic issues from so-called social issues. I think that they are part and parcel of one whole, which is the agenda and values of an organization, a country, a, a business. When you look at the economic questions, you can get to the heart of what the values are right away. And when we look at the challenges that we're facing in America right now, uh, they are not new. They are the same challenges that we have been facing since inception. I talk about this with my students, that back in 1789, when the Constitution was first adopted, the only people who were allowed to participate in the conversation were seven percent of the population. It was white men who owned property. That was it. And over the course of decades and centuries, we have gradually expanded the uh, the definition of who gets to participate. We're not fully there yet uh, by any stretch, but we're doing a lot better than we were in 1789. We can argue about whether we're moving fast enough. I don't think we're moving fast enough, uh, but we certainly are ahead of, of where we used to be a couple of hundred years ago. That takes real push on values issues to begin to include more people in the economic conversation. So how does that relate to Virginia and the 2021 elections and the Democratic Party? Well, the Democratic Party got walloped uh, six weeks ago in the 2021 elections. There's no doubt about that. All across the country, uh, across New York State, from, from New York City, where you are, Eljoy, uh, all the way four hour drive to where I am in Tompkins County, and then it takes another three hours to drive the rest of the way across New York State to Buffalo, uh, and then all the way across the country. We saw that Democrats didn't win. And that is, I believe, not because we have the wrong message, we've got exactly the right message. We as a democratic party believe in freedom from want and freedom from fear. We believe that everybody's voice matters. We believe that everybody should be participating in democracy and we believe that our economic structure uh, should give everyone a fair shake. We got to get out there and, and advance those values on the economic front. You cannot fix the economy You cannot fix this massive income inequality, for example, if you're not gonna fix the problem of generational wealth not being held by black and brown people. You cannot fix the problem of women not fully participating in the economy. Look at what happened in the pandemic. Women lost jobs at a rate much, much faster than men did. If you can't also fix the value of women's work is not compensated properly, that we don't pay for childcare, that we uh, have not, and looks like we're gonna roll back even more, uh, protected women's ability to decide whether or not they're gonna be pregnant and whether or not they're going to uh, have, have children. So we have to wrap those values concerns right into our economic discussion. I think that Democrats are hurting right now. Uh, We're licking our wounds from seeing that we got walloped in 2021. And we're looking for the slam dunk slogan that's going to get us out of that mess. There is no slam dunk slogan. We have to do the work. Now, I've been doing community organizing across uh, very rural upstate New York for about 15 years, and I am a proud progressive Democrat. I show up in communities all over the place and let folks know, hey, look, you and I aren't going to agree on this particular issue and that particular issue, but I'm here and I'm doing the work and I'm volunteering in the library and I'm making sure that farmers have an opportunity to to hold on to their family farms that have been there for, for three generations. We have to do the work and we have to be honest about what our values are and people will respect that. They really will people are not stupid. We already established that here, Eljoy. Uh, people will believe you and trust you, even if you say something that they disagree with, as long as you're honest.
1: Yeah, I, you know, the other piece of that, because I feel like it was also a direct attack on voters across the country who, as you mentioned, are talking about whether that's childcare issues, whether that pertains to income inequality, education, um, inequality that exists. And then for a number of people, what's at the top of our list, in addition to the economy, is voting rights. And that is very much an economic issue as well. You not having the ability to vote without restriction has an economic impact on your livelihood. right? Not being able to choose who represents you, your voice being diminished, whether it's from gerrymandering or from any other issue, has an impact on your ability to, one, elect people of your choosing, and then two, to elect people that will implement and really focus on your economic future. So, you know, one thing I would say, you know, part of part of me wants to write my own memo with like 18 people from random <laughs> like, places. It's just like, you know, to talk to, you know, to sort of, you know, because if we're going to listen to and give, you know, New York Times profile for some random white man with 18 people. Then you should listen to women. You should listen to black women. You should listen to uh, voters in rural America who are talking about these issues have an impact. Policing has an economic impact impact um, on communities. And if you're a community that's over-policed, if you're a community in which in in some metropolitan areas where they use police basically as asset forfeiture and you know tickets and you know things, and that's how the city is funded by tickets and all that kind of stuff. That is an economic issue, right? So all of those things are not just social issues that don't matter, they have an impact on our economic and our you know overall right to life in the pursuit of happiness.
0: And accepting the fallacy that economic issues are somehow different from social issues, that covers up the problems that we have, right? It's a, it's a euphemism. It's a way to say, um, we're gonna speak only to a very select group of white uh, rural people, and we're gonna leave the rest of the folks out of the conversation. It, it's, it's a way to say that without saying it clearly. Yeah, You know who has debunked that beautifully over the last 10 years is Stacey Abrams. Uh, Stacey Abrams, who has gotten national prominence for the achievements that that she's had in the last couple years, absolutely, but who did that work for a full decade or more before she started being paid attention to by the fancy folks. Um, She made really clear that you can go into communities that might consider themselves conservative and might not uh, agree with whatever your social issues are right off the bat. And if you do the work and you show up over and over, you can overcome that. And you can have real conversations with people and you can win elections. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. So my, my view is it's too bad that we haven't done the work before now. Um, but don't change our values. Don't change our message. We've got the right values and the right message. Start doing work. Yeah. Well, Leslie, thank you
1: so very much uh, for joining us at the front of the class, which you're all too familiar with. Um, We certainly welcome you to come back and talk about any other issues that you are involved in. And we thank you. You can look up Trailblazers Pack and be part of the ongoing organizing that's happening. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us.
0: I'm really honored to be on. and, And let me just congratulate you on doing this. Because let me tell you, there is nothing more important than making sure that people are participating in civics. So congratulations to you for doing Sunday Civics.
1: Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening and participating in this conversation in this classroom. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. Have a great one.